This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined by our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and digital journalist Hamish Penman. Welcome guys and I think it's, well, to say it's been a busy week feels a bit of an understatement, um, but let's try to tackle it. Um, starting with energy security in a very literal sense, Ed, uh, kicking off with, well, suspected sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines off Denmark this week. Yeah, yeah. As you say, Alistair, events just keep on coming, <laughs> don't they? Um, so, so yeah, so this week uh, on, on Monday, uh, Nord Stream reported uh, a uh, reduction in pressure. Uh, at that point, it was slightly unclear what happened. By Tuesday, uh, there were reports that three of the four Nord Stream, that's Nord Stream, the first Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2, both pipelines, both of those pipelines have two strings to them. So it's in actual fact, it's four pipelines potentially carrying 110 billion cubic meters of gas per year. Um, so three of these four pipelines were reported to have uh, extremely large holes in them. Um, and, and, and pictures from uh, the uh, Danish uh, armed forces showed uh, what looked like uh, essentially a sort of a fizzy drink in the <laughs> in, in the Baltic Sea. Uh, quite extraordinary pictures. Um, it, obviously, you know, you know, given the circumstances, given uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, given the should we say fraught nature of, uh, of that kind of gas relationship of, of of Russia into Europe? You know, obviously thoughts went immediately to sabotage. The um, the the I think there were some some reports from Sweden suggested that there was a sort of a seismic signature to uh, to to whatever had happened, suggesting that there were explosions. So obviously, sort of really uh, really really highlighting that kind of point around around, around potential sabotage. The obviously a lot of people pointing fingers at Russia. Russia in in turn pointing their finger pretty much at the US. Um, the US, you know, the idea would be like, oh, the US, you know, there, there's obviously talk around sort of LNG exports from uh, from the US. How how the US would stand to benefit. Russia obviously, you know, would stand to benefit from you know sort of really underscoring the the kind of the fragility of of, of energy security and just how much Europe needs Russian gas. So. Obviously, it's a kind of a question that's slightly above my pay grade. Who actually blew the uh, blew the pipelines up? Tell us, but, Ed. Uh, come on, what do you do? <laughs> well, yeah. do you know what? Let's start. I have exactly the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and then actually, as today, as we as we record this 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 pod, it's uh, obviously slightly difficult timing. But there do seem to have been reports that the fourth pipe of the, the that Nord Stream infrastructure does also seem to have been damaged. Um, Obviously, those pipelines were not actually flowing. The the gas was not running from from Russia into Germany, so there was no direct impact on uh, on, on on gas supplies. But it obviously it does mean that uh, those pipelines. I mean, there has been discussion that those pipelines may actually never run again. Obviously, seawater getting into these pipelines, you're looking at corrosion. You're looking at the so the sorts of challenges they would need to essentially. Take out sections of pipeline, probably replace them. Could a Gazprom controlled company do that at this time? Obviously, there are sanctions on on supplies of technology, as we've seen around those kind of some of those discussions around uh, Siemens and that 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 turbine that was uh, that was a topic of much debate in sort of August September. So. There's, you know, clearly it's an incredible amount of capacity, right? 110 BCM. Nord Stream 2, uh, they technically completed it at the end of uh, last year. 
uh, there was obviously a discussion around, uh, you know, kind of bring it into in, in, into operation. Yeah. While it was technically ready, it never actually got signed off. So it was full of gas, but never actually started flowing. So that's $11 billion, just to put a, a price tag on Nord Stream 2. Um, that will uh, obviously, you know, those those com- those uh, Western companies have written off that investment, and it seems plausible, plausible that uh, it, it it may never actually uh, come come into act. So, yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's an extraordinary moment in, uh, in 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 sort of European energy security discussions. For sure, for sure. I mean, I'm surprised that the market hasn't been uh, responding more massively. To be honest, it seems to be slightly less. Then when we had the the Nord Stream Stream One failing to return from maintenance, was that was that last month? It seems such a long time ago. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of the the point in the finger, um, as you say, uh, a bit up in the air. But you know, maybe to take the Russia side of it, I was I was kind of listening to a bit of analysis on the news yesterday, and you remember we had that period. Uh, when Putin was threatening, you know, talk of of, of nuclear weapons, uh, as the the perception was that that might be the only way, the only means available to him to to escalate. Um, I guess the suggestion here is actually there are other ways that Russia could escalate the situation. Um, and you know, uh, we, we'll talk a bit about what the what the looking how it's looking in the UK, I guess, but. If we don't have surveillance or indeed sabotage in the UK, what we I guess what we might see um, or we have seen in the past is problems around cybersecurity. Uh, not necessarily Russian state actors or anything like that, but you know we we definitely have a track record of certain energy services companies being hit by their lacks uh, or or maybe not lacks but not strong enough cybersecurity policies. So um, interesting to follow that up. Um, but Hamish, you've been following pretty closely the, the situation in the UK, and we had some unusual drone activity in, in Norway too. Very unusual um, and quite concerning, I think. A report started to emerge on Monday, the PSA putting out a letter to operators, um, urging them increased vigilance um, after a number, with, a, a figure wasn't given, but a certainly a number of, of drones and um, several platforms that they um, that have been reported that they've been spotted from as well within that 500 meter safety buffer as well so I mean it is illegal um, and I've seen reports elsewhere that they've been um, coming from fishing vessels um, whether these fishing vessels are Russian it, wouldn't want to speculate at this point and i was just going to say i mean i think the, the norwegian sort of side of things obviously monday was significant obviously monday seems to have been the day that uh the nord stream three of those uh three strings of the four were were, were, were disrupted attacked or whatever you want to call it but also it was the day that the baltic pipe uh a new pipeline running from norway into poland uh was commissioned about a month ahead of schedule and obviously Poland is obviously kind of historically kind of at the front line of those kind of uh, Russian uh, European sort of uh, discussions. So I think it it, it does feel like uh, if one wanted to send a message, Monday might have been the best. <laughs> we will quite often think that oh, UK North Sea is kind of just protected by geography more, but I mean there are starting to be heightening concerns over here as well, and the OEUK are starting to put some. Precautionary measures in place uh, to things and um, reports this morning that a drone was spotted from a Total Energies uh, platform in the the Danish North Sea as well. So things do seem to be heightening up rather and I suppose the implication for the UK other than the safety aspects of drones flying in waters is if Norway is affected at all then that's what 40% of gas gone. Yeah. Which is 
would bring the UK to its knees ostensibly. I, I'd be, I'd be, I mean, I, I, I'm sure um, that the Norwegians are, are doing absolutely everything they can. Um, and I guess, I, I mean, I, I called up just the MOD press office yesterday just to say, like, what, what are you, you guys doing? Is there any escalation in terms of your preparedness? And pretty much all they said was steady as she goes. And we don't see expect that status quo to to change. And everyone's being very, very quick to whenever this topic rears its head, everyone's being very quick to say there's no implications for the UK, nothing's been said for the UK. Um, but, you know, behind the scenes, you've, you've got to expect they're being a bit more vigilant than usual, given given what's going on. Um, as you say, Hamish, perhaps, hopefully, um, a bit of geographical protection, notwithstanding the fact that we're a massive importer from Norway. There we are. <laughs> yeah. Um, can I can I just make one more quick point on Nord Stream? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, obviously there's there is the energy security angle, but there is also an environmental angle. Mm. And I think this the pipelines were full of gas, right? That gas is now, as I said, sort of you know leaking out into the Baltic Sea, turning the Baltic Sea into what looks like a sort of a fizzy drink. Um, uh, there was some really interesting uh, analysis from uh, from uh, Capterio who do sort of flaring and sort of gas monitoring, and they were saying that. Essentially, you know, with one line holds about 110,000 tons of methane, which is somewhere between Yemen and Bolivia's uh, annual methane leak. So it's a it's a kind of like a, it's a world scale problem. In terms of uh, kind of CO2 equivalent, it's equivalent to about nine million tons Gosh. because methane obviously is much more potent as a greenhouse gas than uh, than, than, than than carbon dioxide. So. There is obviously this kind of, you know, energy security kind of question, but there is also that kind of longer term question, right, of, of, of uh, you know, just how fast we're cooking the planet. And this is going to uh, act as a, as, a, as a sort of another ex- accelerant to that. Uh, and, and, you know, quite interesting, they suggested, you know, maybe we should uh, maybe we should flare it. Right. I mean, I think, you know, some, you know, sort of turning that methane into carbon dioxide would not be a perfect solution uh but i think it was quite an interesting idea about yeah just sort of just to sort of try and get a bit ahead of it so i just thought obviously the energy security problem is 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 sort of front and center but i think there is also an environmental angle that shouldn't be forgotten i saw saw reports online that the um that picture of the the eye in the baltic sea that's been doing doing the rounds on social media is a kilometer in diameter which really kind of puts it to perspective it was difficult to gauge measurement because it was just see around it but yeah that was quite a, a shocking statistic some people have said it's the world's largest uh ever methane gas leak. wow oh god that, that about sums it up yeah wow uh okay what a what a, what a way to finish the first segment huh <laughs> yeah try try that segue Alistair. yeah um well okay we'll, we'll keep a very close eye on that uh, and well he must be doing some of surveillance of his own on the chancellor's mini budget as well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. 
So, uh, mini-budgets is a quaint way of describing the budget of all budgets, and there's been, uh, well, huge coverage, Hamish, of the economic shockwaves. I'm quite concerned about refinancing our mortgage lit next year, but uh, that's for a different side. Uh, what can Energy Voice take from this uh, this triumphant display of fiscal responsibility? Feels like an absolute lifetime ago now, doesn't it? I can't believe that <laughs> it was only last yeah. week. But yeah, mini-budget in, um, in name only, I think, and perhaps the fact that Kwasi Kwarteng was only on his feet for about... 20 minutes, which was a, a relatively short amount of time, but uh, the response to it and subsequent implications have been been anything but mini, but we'll leave the intricacies of monetary policy and bond guilts to the experts. Um, but for energy anyway, it was, on the whole, pretty positive, I think. Um, so there'll probably be some people that would disagree, mm. but uh, the industry was kind of granted a number of wants again, um, and an increasing increasing amount of people saying that this is the best government that for the North Sea that they can remember in their time, which is, I can't imagine there's too many sectors saying that at the moment. Yeah. Um, Certainly not the housing sector. No. Or the banking. Or the banking. Or pensions. <laughs> Any others? Plenty of others. Anyone that imports um, parts and buys things in, in dollars, for example, any any sector, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the, yeah, I mean, the big headline from the the maxi budget was the hugely unexpected announcement, hugely unexpected announcement actually, that the controversial IR thirty five off payroll tax reforms that came into force last year are to be scrapped from next year. Um, so in the run up to it, I did the round of our very um, willing and and uh, employment experts who are always on hand for IR thirty five related matters. They were hoping for superficial tinkering at best. I think was the kind of general general theme from it i don't think anyone had expected this and going back to them again on the friday after it announced the kind of general response was well there goes my day um so hamish hamish can yeah can i can i ask you for like an idiot's guide to ir35 i mean it's one of those things that i see kind of cropping up and i and i, and I understand it's very important uh but i have never understood what it actually means yeah you could read much on this online, but I'm going to give it a, a hash attempt now. But basically, the um, so when the rules came into force, it changed, it put the onus on employers to decide whether contractors were contractors or whether the role they performed in the company was closer to that of an actual employee. So it was kind of designed to stop um, personal service companies being used as uh, normal workers, but then registering as self-employed because then they'd have the tax benefits Um if companies got that um, classification wrong, they faced pretty hefty fines, and there were it basically there were large amounts of reports that it drove contractors uh, out of the business to move overseas just simply because they had such a whack in their income. Yeah, it was a massive cut to, to incomes. Yeah, fifty percent that some were people were saying. Um, so there's yeah that came into force in April twenty twenty one. There's kind of more moving parts to it, but that's that's the list. And it kind of it reduced the resource pool that was open to companies and and led many to just simply to categorize all contractors as employees because it was simpler than trying to do the nitty-gritty of working out who is what um but yeah don't need to worry about that now because it's been repealed so <laughs> i think i think what is you know pretty clear i mean i think yeah i think there there is a tax question at a time when the economy's in in the tank as it were um but i guess Purely from that North Sea side of it, this has been such a muddle and, and such a huge concern for so many companies. As you say, Hamish, many of them just blanket, um, just making blanket decisions regardless, regardless because they were, they were scared of falling on the wrong side of the law. I think what's clear right now, many, many contractors in the North Sea um, are really struggling to find workers. You know, I, I was speaking to someone in the supply chain this week and, and just the huge 
percentage difference in the payoff or now versus oh you know 2020 you know or, or pre-covid just to get people on board and then the operators don't want to increase their rates despite the oil prices going up and and then you you're left with this uh this this huge lack of of workers and the ones that are working as we've seen so many different companies are um balloting on strike action right now so there's a lot of knock-on impacts so i suppose this might be one measure just to help out the supply chain, just to help perhaps get things a, a bit more healthy in the, in the workforce pool. Again, yeah, uh, it might mean that some people are not paying as much tax as they should. That's, I think that's questionable. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, it seems we can see from the reaction and the stories we've published that this has been hugely welcomed um, by the supply chain. And uh, it's probably one of the only things that have been welcomed yeah. from this budget. So there we are. <laughs> I mean, kind of the long and short of it is that just, I mean, when these, uh, when the implications are made, companies are just going to be able to, going to be a lot more nimble, better to respond to, to short-term issues, to plug employment gaps here and there when they cross up. And hopefully it will attract some workers back to the sector because there were, yeah, like I said, there have been reports that many have just gone overseas to, to more favourable employment um, markets. But I really enjoyed, a real highlight of my Friday was Dave Chaplin, who's chief executive of um, Tax Compliance compliance firm IR35 Shield going full Nigel Farage in the Euro European Commission after the Brexit vote and saying the stop the off payroll campaign I personally ran for four years spelt out the punitive effect that the legislation would have. My final word to the government on the matter is I told you so and you finally listened. <laughs> He's relishing that, yeah. He's relishing that. <laughs> yeah. He also claimed it's gives the Conservatives a chance of winning the next general election Ooh, which is one hell of a claim. Especially given the polls from last night but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, can we can we just very quickly talk about the the fast tracking um, side of it too? He uh, mentioned a number of fields, not just oil fields, but uh, projects and renewables and that as well. Um, as I mean, I just looking at the implications of that. I mean, if you're fast tracking oil and gas fields, I'm just I'm curious what that's going to look like in practice because we've had people like Aberdeen University lecturers this week criticizing the climate checkpoint system that was introduced or has just you know been kind of published the the system they're going to use for the next licensing round. They're saying it's not statutory, final decision with the NSTA, meaning it's going to be difficult to challenge legally. A wave through test, nothing more, doesn't cover scope three. People saying, you know, it's, it manages to reject a managed phase out of production on one page and invoke a just transition on the next one. It's a transition is not a cliff, but, you know, it is still a transition <laughs> and we need to acknowledge that um, is, is their words. Um, yeah, I'm curious about that. But again, it's it's been pretty widely, um, in the energy sector at least, everyone's been pretty positive about the budget and, and the fast tracking side yeah the uh, the ngos were less than enamored with it um but uh, <laughs> uh yeah i mean it seemed to be a real juxtaposition that on one hand there was this climate checkpoint that i think came out the day or two before saying we're going to have scrutiny there's going to be hurdles that all new fields will have to clear and then a couple of days later we are cutting red tape to make sure we get these fields through as quickly as humanly possible and i mean amongst them is cambo who remembers Campbell? Seems like a lifetime so, ago. <laughs> it's been so long. Yeah, it does. It's been so long. It really yeah. puts last week's budget and timelines into perspective. But yeah, I mean, Intog schemes as well. So that's good news. Scotland projects. Um, although, I, I mean, for those offshore wind projects, it'd be interesting to know how much they can actually bring the timeline down because 
they are so long term and there's so much work that needs to be carried out before they even get to these sorts of um so many different regulators to deal uh, with as well yeah exactly so i mean there was kind of talk of trying to create maybe a, a streamlined regulatory system um that brings in all the different aspects of the regulator which has been has been an ask of industry in the past because they do feel they get passed from pillar to post trying to get sign off here and there um but yeah the north sea fields murlac cambo Harbour Energy's Talbot Victory as well um, were the five that were were mentioned. I don't know if there were kind of if there were specific criteria for them. There probably were, but but yeah, um, interesting. Anyway, I mean, it's uh, be interested to see how much the uh, the timeline for these projects actually is brought down. Well, yeah, no, I was just going to say that the the that kind of the onshore thing. I mean, I think you know, I just, I mean, I think you know, obviously, I'm uh, I'm I'm you know, not uh, not quite as much in the loop, but it, it seems strange that the government seems to be backing fracking. Uh, but opposing on like sort of uh, solar farms and onshore wind, which seems like a really sort of uh, a strange square to kind of try and circle, doesn't it? I mean, I think the idea that people would be opposed to a, you know, some solar panels in the next door field, but would welcome rigs and potentially, should we say, induced seismicity seems like a really sort of a strange way to, you know, sort of try and solve the uh, the, the energy puzzle that we're all facing. I was I was listening to Liz Truss's radio interviews of the BBC. You know, the, the she was going around the the different BBC, and then she was questioning about fracking in in, in like Lan- Lancashire, which has been really a hotbed of controversy around that. You know, we'll recall Quadrilla in uh, you know I think twenty thirteen twenty fourteen was was really trying to get that ramped up, and, and she was I think she was say, saying something along the lines of, well, we're not going to have it unless you know there's community support for it. Um, which, which, yeah, just seems seems a bit of a, a, a moot point, you know. Uh, I guess, you know, uh, but but you know, we'll we'll see how that plays out. Uh, I, I think you're right, Ed. It seems very selective and, and a strange political play. Um, I could see why some communities would be would be concerned about that, but we'll we'll see how that plays. Okay. Uh, well, we will we will continue talk of uh, questionable economics next. Uh, this time around hydrogen. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, so lots of hype around hydrogen recently, obviously, um, and a think tank in Brussels has come out with a report to piss on their chips, uh, to turn a favourite favorite phrase from an old editor. Um, so this is a review of uh, dozens of you know, peer-reviewed studies um, which have arrived at the conclusion that hydrogen will not play a major role in the heating of homes in Britain. And this has been carried out by the Regulatory Assistant Project Think Tank in Brussels. Um, it's found that Using hydrogen in domestic heating is less economic, less efficient, more resource intensive, and has a bigger environmental impact than alternatives, including heat pumps using solar thermal panels, uh, you know, heat they, things that will heat water directly in sunlight, district heating, uh, where whole blocks or neighborhoods are supplied through the same kind of hot water system. And all of this comes 
as the UK government is set to decide by 2026 what role hydrogen will play in the future in terms of heating British homes. And it, it said last year that by 2035, hydrogen could play a big role there. Uh, you know, and it is currently running trials to to prove that. It is, of course, not the only use for hydrogen, likely not the dominant use for hydrogen. You know, we have, we have things like energy storage uh, and use in transport and decarbonizing uh, heavy industrial clusters. And I've discussed this with some people in the industry, which, which we'll get into, but in terms of, of where you go from here, uh, difficult to justify uh, hydrogen from the domestic heating angle. Before I maybe I move on, what are you guys' initial takes on that? Because, I mean, we, we obviously, we speak to so many people in the oil and gas industry who are, are obviously quite keen, um, some might say lobbying um, for, for hydrogen. Um, and, you know, this, I think this plays quite a, this is a pretty big hammer blow in terms of justifying that domestic heating piece. As I say, it's not the only application, but I think a lot of people will perhaps be scratching their head here. I did a piece for the supplement, I think three or four months ago, with um, on blending hydrogen into the national gas uh, national gas grid. And people were very up for it. I mean, SGN are planning to try and make Aberdeen the UK's first hydrogen-powered city within the next kind of couple of decades. Um, down at the Southern North Sea Conference, they were very bullish about the potential for Bacton to be producing hydrogen and feeding it into the national grid so which kind of runs in direct contrast to, to everything they were saying I mean it, it seems odd that the economics are so far out of whack given the current price of natural gas you would have thought everyone's kind of saying that perhaps we should accelerate the move towards hydrogen because the gas price is so high I mean I guess I guess I guess uh, you know my feelings are looking at sort of you know hydrogen for you know sort of domestic heating obviously as you say Alistair there are other applications where you know the the economics may look better now I think I would say for me it it seems that you know we're making so much progress in terms of you know as Hamish says right kind of the the cost situation is changing people are always you know doing the, the amount of you know press releases uh people talking about you know new electrolyzer technology like developments in in bringing down those 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 prices i think is quite striking and i think you know there is obviously i think there, there you know there is a really kind of a, there is a big question around how we are going to heat our houses in a net zero way. But I think also not every house is going to be able to, you know, attach a heat pump, right? They are quite big. There are challenges around them. If we do move to an all electrified system, we're going to need a lot more electricity. We're going to need a lot more capacity, a lot more transmission. So I think, I don't know, for me, I mean, obviously, you know, as you say, we we, we kind of, uh, we get a lot of, uh, you know, uh, chat about the, the positives of hydrogen given given what we do but it you know it 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 feels uh it like a it would be a, a bold and, and slightly rash move to, to write it off just now i mean particularly you know when you can when you can see that there are kind of ways to, to kind of tackle it that that look like they are you know worthy of investigation and as these pilot projects are kind of going ahead so for me i mean you know uh, i will uh, i will i will wait and see and and, and carry on uh, following the uh, the the debate because there's, there's there's it's never ending right i mean i think you know the the and in in some ways the sort of the vitriol that one sees just seems to be increasing right if you look on you know twitter about hydrogen and the sort of you know the increasingly sort of uh, you know sort of personal nature of sort of uh, discussion around hydrogen and, you know, there are true believers and there are tr people who are, you know, really opposed to it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on a, a couple of those then. Uh, so I, I was speaking to, to, to somebody this week, uh, Bob Drummond, who's is the CEO of, of Hydrosun, which is an Aberdeen-based uh, services company that's investing big in, in hydrogen, mainly targeting green hydrogen. Um, 
big strides in you know mobility and transport, but also you know more more static um, applications too. And I asked him about this this study um, and and some of the the are these noises you know deterring you or, or putting you off from investing? And no is the short answer, but. It said that it's good everyone's discussing this, they've got the thinking hats on. I think you're right, Ed. I think there is a bit of vitriol going on in the debate online particularly. And on the studies themselves, he said the conclusions, yeah, they're quite clear. But what you need to look at is the direct cost to the consumer versus overall cost. Now, this is his words, not mine. Uh, he said, you know, blending into pipelines would be next to nothing in terms of cost to the consumer, whereas things like heat pumps will cost. That's his argument. I'm sure converting boilers for hydrogen will probably see a, a, a cost of some kind to the consumer, but let's leave that aside. Um, and, and you might also argue that ultimately the taxpayer will cost will cover some cost of any such venture, even if it comes to repurposing our existing pipelines. You know, will there be any kind of government government involvement in trying to pay for that? You'd, you'd have thought so. In terms of the pilot projects, um, what he argued was that things like the H100 project in Fife will be a kind of key exemplar in terms of whether or not this can work in terms of cost, for those that don't know, um, H100, it's a four-year trial um, with about 300 homes initially, moving up to about 1,000 homes um, in a few years, to see, uh, you know, it'll see you know, customers given free hydrogen-ready boilers, cooking appliances, which will be maintained at no cost. It's a £30 million scheme from SGN, and they want to find out whether or not these homes can be heated with 100% green hydrogen, it's a, a world first project, and I think it's you know maybe fair to say, as, as you say, Ed, you know, let's see how that plays out before we we move on, because we also do have you know a lot of efforts right now to bring down the levelized cost of hydrogen. Um, I was doing an event with the, the Technology Leadership Board this week, and a lot of discussion there about interdependency. You know, if we want to bring down the cost of green hydrogen, let's try to bring down the cost of floating wind. You know, the two are are linked pretty firmly when it comes to the North Sea anyway. Um, and that means things like, you know, modular designs for electrolyzers, standardized designs for hulls for floating offshore wind. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And uh, one of the points they're making is that if we want to do that, what we need is government-sponsored test and demonstration centers uh, here in the UK. Um, so I think perhaps, you know, if, if the government's dead keen on making this happen, maybe uh, a bit of cash towards uh, test and demo here in the UK might not be the worst idea. So, um, so yeah. Well, I, I think that's, that's about enough of, of pissing in everyone's chips for one podcast. Uh, so on that happy note, that is it for this episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Ed and to Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.